1: Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, one of our favorites, good friend of ours. We love him to death, Daniel DiMartino, one of our great Young Voices contributors. He is out there fighting authoritative socialism and communism like a beast. I love this guy. Uh, the Dissident Project, something you're to really need to check into. Daniel, my friend, been a while. Let's talk. Good to see you.
2: Good to see you too, Andrew.
1: All right, sir. Uh, I want to ask you, starting with this. You're, of course, from Venezuela. I This court case this sob court case down in miami it didn't get a whole lot of press but you tweeted about it and it's not just the court case that i want to talk about you talk with the Dissident project about the dissidents and the activists and how dissent is crushed and how the propaganda by these dictators works this court case is a good example of because this is u.s soil this is down in miami we have this Saab case where um this is an ally of nicholas maduro's government And they're trying him. But what happened in the courtroom and what you tweeted about goes to what you talk about with the distance project. All these supporters of the Maduro government shows up and they're protesting and they're trying to do a show of force. That's not organic. That's a very old tactic. This is one of those ways that these dictators exert influence, even on American soil, that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. And I think it's really important to point it out. And you were tweeting about it. Why don't you tell us what you think about that?
2: Yeah, well, what's going on is that Alex Saab is a businessman who uh, has laundered money for the Maduro regime for many years. The United States indicted him on money laundering because that's what he is. And the Maduro regime is arguing that he was on a diplomatic passport. After the fact that he was arrested, when he was not on a diplomatic passport, he isn't even born in Venezuela. This is a man who is actually Colombian with Lebanese citizenship. Uh, so, so this is not a, a Venezuelan individual. And now, because we have we have him in U.S. custody and there's a trial, they're sending paid people, people who who are involved with them in Miami to the the trial to to show. this fake support for, for the Venezuelan regime. What I was saying is that if there are people receiving payments from the Maduro regime living in the United States, that's something that the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice need to know about because that's in violation of U.S. law and sanctions as well.
1: Right. And the sanctions are the important part here, not just because of the trial itself. The reason they have to launder money is because they're trying to get around all the sanctions and this sort of thing. But anytime you have a foreign government exerting influence like that, look, this isn't a courtroom like this. This isn't just like on a street corner. This is in something that's an integral part of our criminal justice system courthouse. That's a symbol of the U.S. government. This is pretty blatant stuff. And it's the stuff that doesn't trend on Twitter, but it's very much a power move to try to do things like this, isn't it?
2: Well, it is because it shows that the Maduro regime has people inside the United States. And these aren't just naive supporters who who are just, you know, answering a call. Um, th- this is a, a well organized group of, of people who are not just in the US, but all over the world. And, and there is finance from Venezuela, from Cuba, from Nicaragua. And if they can do that and show up in a US courtroom, You know they can do a lot of other things and they can lobby legislatures and they even have you know people working in in the u.s government and and that's what's scary right it's kind of like what happened in the cold war the soviet union had spies here the you know the cubans had spies here uh, and still do and now the venezuelans do as well
1: this is important daniel de martino joining us because we know um the immigration crisis in venezuela is driven by the political situation and the economic situation. It's inarguable. That's what's driving the immigration crisis out of there. The fact that they can reach here, and now it seems like after a few years ago where it looked like it was a little little shaky, the Maduro regime not only looks pretty stable now, but now they're back to exerting influence. They're opening their border with Colombia now, they just announced. Uh, they've been doing some ties with Russia because Russia's desperate for any ally they can get right now. So there's been some of that going on. This is not only a stabilized regime, they're starting to try and do exert some influence again. Is that, is that an inaccurate way to look at this?
2: Well, the, you know, the Chavez, the, the former dictator who passed away and, and gave uh, power to Maduro afterwards uh, in 2013, he had a strategy of asymmetrical warfare against the United States. And that came in different forms. So one of one of the his tools against America was the cocaine trafficking, in which he was personally involved with, just like Maduro is, and the rest of the Venezuelan regime and military are. Uh, That's what the cartel of the sons, the el cartel de los soles, which is indicted by the, the Department of Justice, it does. They they send cocaine from Venezuela to the United States in massive numbers. Um so, so that's on one end. The other end is is um, information warfare. They have channels that are financed by the Venezuelan regime that, and uh, you know, try to persuade people in the United States. One of them is TeleSur. TeleSur not only has, um, you know, a, a, a traditional TV channel presence, but a social media presence in Twitter, in YouTube, in in Instagram, everywhere. And that's where they try to say that anything that happens in Venezuela that's bad, it's because of U.S. imperialism instead of socialism, which is the reality. Uh, And and then there's the the more obvious warfare of, uh, you know, criminals uh, and people who come here that they try to send, or, or, or criminals that are international and they try to collaborate with Iran and with Russia and Cuba. And all of this, their, their goal ultimately is to take over more countries, to make sure that there are more people on their side, um, more money to steal, that the United States stops sanctioning them, and that's why they do this information warfare, to persuade people against the sanctions. And, and ultimately so that they can stay in power in perpetuity.
1: Yeah, Daniel DiMartino joining us. You just mentioned it. Asymmetric warfare politically with a lot of different motion. What does it tell us, though, that this is warfare that they're fighting? They see this as warfare. They see this as a geopolitical struggle. But the United States policy, and this is bipartisan because it goes back a couple of administrations now since Hugo Chavez. Policy wise, Americans, government and the American people don't seem to be treating it as that kind of a problem. How do we bridge that gap of like, look, they're doing this on purpose and we're not even really paying attention to it other than when the immigration stuff pops up on the radar here, there and yonder. How do we start changing that? Because, you know, if you got one person fighting you and you're not even paying attention, that's when you kind of get a lot of harm done just by inertia and by ignorance and by not paying any attention whatsoever to it.
2: Yeah, Um well, I think that the what's happening with Russia and Ukraine is actually a good opportunity to let people know about this because Venezuela isn't the only foreign state that does this against the United States. Russia has been doing it for far longer. And and Russia has Russia today, uh, where they both bring what's the Russian population and the... Um, the American population that, that tunes into those channels. But they also have a bunch of little offshoots that they collaborate with Iran and Venezuela with channels like the gray zone, uh, which su- supposedly say they're independent journalists. But when you look into their legal structure, they are part of Russian and, and other foreign state entities. And they have personally met with the dictators of all these places, and, and, and express their support. So, you know, the Chinese pay YouTubers to promote their pro-CCP content so that they can brainwash the, the youth in the United States. And it is an opportunity to crack down these things because the reality is that the First Amendment applies to people in the United States. It doesn't apply to foreign states trying to send money into America. And we can and should restrict the use of foreign government money in U.S. media. That is not restricting U.S. media. You can say whatever you want in favor of of Putin, in favor of Maduro, if you're in the United States, if you use your own money, not if you use the money of the Venezuelan regime that comes from human rights violations and, and it's blood money. That's what we should be restricting.
1: Yeah. Daniel DiMartino, you talked about this before, but I just want to reiterate it. The scale of this, the numbers don't really, seven million refugees out of Venezuela since the Maduro regime. That's a catastrophic number by any measure. About 450 to 500,000, depending on which numbers you want to use. The U.N. uses 465,000 wound up in the U.S. Obviously, Colombia and Peru and Chile, they get a lot of them just geographically, Spain and Brazil this is a massive diaspora of Venezuelans that have left the country before we talk about the American side of the immigration just talk about what that does to Venezuela itself the brain drain the talent drain the people that are leaving there's just no way to really comprehend what that does to a country is there
2: well the the most shocking part um, on on really the, the- part that venezuelans feel the most is that now there's so many empty houses and empty buildings in the country um you know whole neighborhoods that are half full um you know friends and families that are separated there's virtually no family in the country that doesn't have at least one family member who has left there are many families that their entire the entire family has left and that, that is destructive for, for the social fabric of a, of a region, of a country, and, and it's really sad. Economically, though, I got to say that the immigration has helped those who, has, who have stayed because since there's no way to make money and survive in the country, the fact that 7 million out of 30 million people have left and are sending back remittances every month is actually what's maintaining the people who stay behind alive. And so, um, you know, in that way, Venezuela has become similar to Cuba, a parasitic economy where they can't produce anything because of the government regime inside. But it's it's dependent on its diaspora abroad to send money back in to survive.
1: Yeah. Daniel Martino joining us. Let's talk about those immigrants in America, though. Just back in October, the U.S. started to change their policy. It had been that Venezuelans were winning their asylum cases at a much higher rate than most of the other people groups that were coming in. Crackdown is not the right word, but they basically said, hey, the Venezuelans at the border are going to be like everybody else. They're going to have to be in line. Then they come around and say, well, we're going to make these 24,000 slots for them. Well, the problem is there's 33,000 Venezuelans a month trying to come in. Should there be a different policy towards Venezuelans? We just saw here recently the last week or two that they've extended uh, protection for Haitian refugees. We've had Ukrainian refugees things. We've had, of course, the Afghanistan refugees that we brought over. Should the U.S. policy be different towards Venezuelan refugees coming from this country? And what should it look like?
2: Well, let let me ex- begin by explaining a little bit of what the policy is and, and, and was re- with respect to asylum seekers in general in the southern border um and how venezuelans used to get asylum before so because venezuela used to be a rich country a lot of venezuelans had u.s tourist visas in their passports and that meant that when things got rough a lot of venezuelans who who wanted to come seek asylum in america they just bought a plane ticket traveled to the states and once they were here they claimed asylum that is a process that happened for over a decade and nobody even noticed because this was our orderly processed planes. You know, nobody knew it was happening really. Um, these were people with more means because they had the means to buy a plane ticket. Um, but what happened is that since the 2019, there's no US Embassy in Venezuela. Even then, nobody's getting tourist visas to come to the United States because every you know, the, the US Embassy thinks, I think rightfully that if you're going to get a tourist visa specifically to come to the States right now, you're likely going to want to get asylum and, and overstay. So they just don't give it to you. And what happens is that a lot of Venezuelans just say that the, their only path, uh, realistically, it's true, their only path is to walk to, to the southern border and claim asylum there. Now, since the pandemic, there's been a policy called Title 42, which is really... Uh, a, a policy to, to deter disease into the United States. And so the U.S. government has been claiming for many years now, for over two, that uh, asylum seekers are bringing COVID-19 into the United States, which is a lie. And that's why the judges have you know, already overturned Title 42 and have given until this month to the U.S. government to do something else or Title 42 ends regardless because it is not true on public health grounds. You cannot justify, you know, forbidding asylum against U.S. law by the way, because U.S. law says that if you present yourself at the Southern border and at a port of entry, you 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 have the right to seek asylum. Uh, if, if they deny you asylum later because your claim is false, they can deport you. But on, on its face, you have the right to seek asylum and wait inside the country. Um, What happened was that the the Biden administration was not applying Title 42 to Venezuelans. Uh, In October, they started applying Title 42 to Venezuelans and in exchange, they gave Venezuelans a parole program, which means that you can apply from Venezuela to come to the States if you have a sponsor. The goal, and I think it's a good goal, is to make the process more orderly so that there are no Venezuelans getting shipped to New York in in buses and end up in homeless shelters which is bad for you know the venezuelans and it's bad for crime in the city uh and so i i support that move the problem is that it was too few spots as you mentioned you know just twenty four thousand that more than those have applied already and by the end of the year they're gonna run out and um and anyway title 42 is gonna end so what i think that the Biden administration should be doing is how do we make sure we have an orderly asylum process at the southern border and before the border? So can we change the law or can we do something by executive action such that people can apply for asylum online in their home country safely, but at the same time not wait months because they don't have months, you know, because that for a re- there's a reason they seek asylum. They don't have months to stay in their countries. Um, or do we have a, or, or can we change our policies here such that when people get to the southern border, they are left in processing centers, not not allowing the rest of the country. And the decisions are quick, you know, less than a week rather than than a year, because if the decisions are going to take a year, you cannot keep somebody who has not committed a crime in jail for one year. That's inhumane because I know people who have been left in those ICE facilities crossing the southern border for months without committing any crime just waiting for to be released and without even an asylum decision and let me tell you the conditions are not good they're really dire the food is terrible you know the the treatment is not right and and so we need to make sure that if they're going to stay in any government facility these people claiming asylum it needs to be less than a week and if the decision is negative they get deported and if the decision is affirmative they get admitted with full rights inside the united states
1: Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on The Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics From the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Yeah, Daniel D. Martino, you do a lot of public speaking, so you've been around the country for quite a bit now. When you're talking to people about Venezuela, is it, oh, I didn't realize that was happening or I didn't realize how bad it was? What's the level of knowledge? What's the response you get when they get that human face in front of them? And it's not just a news story or a tweet. Tell me the reaction you get when you're just talking to people about what's going on in Venezuela, the reaction you get to it.
2: Well, they didn't know that, for example, uh, none of the groups I speak to knew that Venezuelans were the largest refugee crisis in the world right now. Because everybody talks about Ukraine and Syria and Afghanistan, uh, yet nobody knows that it is 7 million Venezuelan refugees compared to 6.5 and, and and so for, for Syria and, and Ukraine each. Um, and, and so... You know, people get shocked by that, especially the kids, since I speak at the high schools and middle schools to, to talk about Venezuela and what happened there, too. Uh, the kids had no idea about anything happening in Venezuela at all. They didn't know Venezuela was a socialist country. They didn't know Venezuelans were starving or leaving their country. Um, and, and they were surprised to learn that there is another socialist government in the Western Hemisphere aside from Cuba. And so that's why I think that task is so important because Venezuela, unlike Cuba, unlike the USSR, unlike Eastern Europe and China, is the only socialist country who was destroyed by socialism through a democratic election at the beginning. It was something that the Venezuelan people elected and they made a mistake. And now we can't get them out democratically, of course, um you know even though the venezuelan people want that um and, and i think that that's an important story to tell because venezuela used to be a rich country and it fell because people elected the wrong uh the wrong platform the wrong ideology into power and, and that's something that could happen to the united states
1: yeah daniel Martino, let's talk about the united states real quick though i Look, immigration's a mess in the U.S. You just walked through it. That's just the Venezuelans. You've got all these other people groups that's got similar situations, good, bad, or indifferent. The immigration situation's bad. We don't want to deal with it in a comprehensive manner. We want to keep piecemeal in it. There's political things. There's economic things. It's bad. But turning that noise down, when you just have to deal with some idiot online, like, well, deport him because they didn't like something you say. When you deal with crap like that, how do we change this conversation online? And I don't mean the people that are just bad faith and just throwing things out because there, there's a long strand of anti-immigration in America. You can go look at political cartoons from the 1800s. This is not new. How do we talk about this better? We ourselves, social media in person is it putting human faces on it is it talking about the legal and the ramifications and the regulations that can be changed and should be changed is it talking about the economic side of it is it some combination of it how do we talk about this better because right now it's just something we throw at each other online and that's not getting anything accomplished
2: yeah Uh, i i'm a i'm a believer that personal interactions and putting a face to people uh is very impactful And it's very different to talk about something in the abstract than to talk about your friend or talk about your family member who you know very intimately how the immigration process was for them and and what it's really like. And the problem that we have on immigration in this country is that, you know, 80% of Americans have no idea how the legal immigration system works. And most people think that there is simply an application process, that any reasonably good and normally skilled person uh, with some type of tie to the United States can, can come, legally go through and, and come here. And that's not true. And so, uh, you know, but, but a lot of people understand that it's broken. They just don't know how to fix it. And, and that's, that's what we need to, to make sure people know and, and then, and then we can start a conversation over how to do it. Um, there's a lot of, uh, evidence in the economics literature that shows that the longer you have interacted with immigrants, the more accepting you become of immigrants. So the, the continuous interaction in your communities, you know, a community that has no immigrants has no idea how immigrants are and tends to actually be more opposed to immigration. But communities that have had, uh, a, you know, a number of immigrants, it doesn't have to be a high number, maybe 10% of them, maybe 5% of them are immigrants uh, for a long period of time, uh, tend to be more accepting of immigrants. And so if, if we make sure that other immigrants make sure that they befriend more people who are from the United States, if we make sure that you know, that those kinds of relationships keep being built, I- I'm, I'm confident that over the long term, um, you know, over the next 10, 20, 30 years, the United States, which is already an extremely tolerant and accepting country, um, would become even more so of immigrants.
1: And we know that uh, economically and the strength of our country, look, you either have to have a high birth rate or you got to have immigrants like that's just it's just a math problem. If you want to be an economic power, that's what you need. And we're fortunate where we still, even with all our problems, are a a beacon of freedom. And a lot of people around the world want to come here and make their lives here in America. And we, we should find a good path to get the best people possible and get the most freedom and economic opportunity for as much people as possible. But that's a longer conversation for another day. My friend, Daniel DiMartino. You're so good on this stuff, and I so appreciate you. But the work you do with going to the schools and the meetings and the organizations you talk to with the Dissident Project, that's probably more important than talking to me. Talk about that for just a second. Let people know where they can find that and the other things you're working on until we get you back on tell again, my friend.
2: Yes. So the Dissident Project is the only speakers bureau in the United States who sends immigrants who lived in authoritarian countries into high schools, into middle schools to tell their stories about how these socialists and other forms of authoritarian regimes uh you know made them flee their their country ruined their 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 lives and their families lives and and so that we can create gratitude among the young american students for living in america and not only make them grateful to live in america but also allow them to understand free enterprise is what Made America prosperous and 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 so great to live in, um, and 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 so we we do this by by traveling to high schools at no cost. Uh, we have right now five speakers from uh, four different countries. We're gonna expand in February to about fifteen speakers, so we're going a triple our size because of the high demand that we have from schools and and, uh, it's truly an amazing experience for the kids, that you can find us at dissidentproject.org, and you can support us either by donating or by recommending a speaker. If you want to apply yourself if you are from an authoritarian country and live in the States, or if you're a teacher, you're a staff member, um, you you can invite us to your school. It has no cost to you. We'll, We'll just find a mutually agreeable date and speaker, and we'll make it happen.
1: Yeah, Daniel DiMartino. The thing about that, too, is when you're, and I've talked to several of those dissident, somebody like Francis, who's like, hey, when I was your age, I was in the streets of Hong Kong having to protest. That really drives stuff home in a way that just talking about it or seeing a video or whatever. When you talk to those kids, you can see it in their face, right? Like it just hits different when it's somebody close to their age telling them these stories, right?
2: It does. And for me, it was when I was 17, I left Venezuela, right? And I was, you know, living through hyperinflation at the age of these kids, and uh, you know, I came yesterday from Wichita, where I was speaking at a middle school, and I was showing the kids, um, you know, cash from Venezuela, and they were uh, very curious about it. And, and when they were seeing the the videos from Venezuela, they were all very curious and came to ask to ask me a lot of questions. And 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 you see that it has an impact. You know, it, in-person interaction is more meaningful a talk is is relatively cheap and you can impact hundreds of students in each of them um and and the goal is such that these are young students before they go through what i believe is the college brainwashing machine and the next time in the in five years when they hear the word socialism for the first time from a politician what they're going to think about is not free stuff they're going to think about the venezuelan guy who came to their high school a few years ago and told them how socialism ruined his life or the uh, north korean girl who told them the same and and that's the goal
1: yeah and it's a very good work um daniel dimartino let folks know everything follow you on social media and what you got coming up before we let you go
2: yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel D. Martino. Daniel's the regular name and D. Martino is D-I-M-A-R-T-I-N-O. And you can also find my find my my work and, and subscribe to to my content on my website at DanielDMartino.com.
1: Yep, you do great work, my friend. We will have you back frequently as often as I can get you. Look forward to seeing you soon. Daniel D. Martino, thank you so much for the time, sir.
2: Likewise, Andrew.
1: Yes, sir. Uh, welcome back to tell Okay, a tradition unlike any other, because we did it last year, now we're doing it again this year. So now it's a tradition, maybe That's a right. habit. Depends on your point of view. Brian O'Nolan's return, so we can talk about bad Christmas music. Uh, he's an educator, he is a writer at ordinary dot times.com. He's a good friend of the program, although we haven't seen him since last Christmas. That's how popular that segment was. Brian, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Yourself? Good. The bionic man with the brand new hip. That's why he's sitting down right now. Uh, right. But we need we need you above the shoulders for this one, maybe a little bit of your heart. Uh, we did this last year. I wanted to do it again, but though, boy, howdy. I just did a Christmas trip. I was out of town. You know, everybody's playing Christmas music. My God, is there a lot of bad Christmas music in the last 10, 15 years?
0: There really, really is. And I was thinking, um, because I actually, I was. we're talking bad Christmas music, but I want to defend a Christmas song here because, A couple weeks ago, my son, my younger son, he's 12, he comes home and he says, you know what the worst Christmas song is? And of course, I've got a catalog catalog in my head and I'm thinking, well, okay, he's got about a dozen he could pick from. What did he say? Keep in mind, we're talking about a seventh grader. What song did he pick?
1: I don't know. Grinch.
0: Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You.
1: Now, the kids are all right. He's got a point.
0: I had to take a moment and I said, you know what? I think I know what the problem is, and I don't think it's the song. I think it's partly the fact that it is, and check me here, because you're a little bit more tuned into pop music than I am. I feel like it's the last or most recent entry into the Christmas music canon. That it's the most recent standard that has been released. And I was shocked when I looked it up. I I, I looked it up because I wasn't sure what year it had been released. And I was guessing late 90s, boy, was I wrong, 1994 this song was released. And it was a throwback at the time, which I didn't realize until this morning when I was thinking about it. It's it's really a throwback to sort of classic Motown. If you told me that, uh, you know, Ronnie Spector had recorded it uh, in 1968, I'd I, I believe you. Um, but no, it's a, a Mariah Carey original. And I think it has become so ubiquitous. It's the first song you hear at the end of October in Target. And I think that, that it's it's, so frequently heard that a lot of people are just annoyed by it whereas it's genuinely a really good song it's just all positivity um it's a love song about christmas and and what's not to like about that i mean i guess on the 500,000th hearing it might get a little annoying but um so i just want to defend that one for a moment um not that it's my favorite but i think that you know it's i looked it up it's the 12th highest selling single of all time and you don't get that high on the charts without being a decent song
1: no it's a throwback to the i think you're right it was a throwback song at the time the problem is it's been beaten over the head of everybody for the better part of the last 30 years so that's why we're all sick of it but, yeah, yeah but it, you talked about the Canada. It depends on your definition. That's probably the most, by far, the most commercially successful of the recent, and recent, I mean the last 30, 40 years, you know, because we have the classical Christmas music, then you have the standards from, you know, the 60s, 70s, 50s, White Christmas, all that stuff. Yeah. Of the modern era stuff of the last 40 years, it's clearly the most commercially successful, the most well-known. I don't think there's any debate about that. No, it's, la- not even,
0: it's not even close. Of, of Christmas, not even Christmas, sorry just songs singles the only other christmas song in english that has sold more is white christmas and that's the greatest selling single of all time i mean they literally was an
1: accident we did that one last year yeah the verse of white christmas that we know was actually the original third verse and it was like a 20 minute song
0: yeah and it wasn't Bing crosby's song at first um and he ended up actually having to re-record the the master of that song because the original master was so worn out from so many pressings of the record that they had to go in and re-record it uh which is just mind-boggling it sold 50 million copies um and to to mariah carey's only 18 for all i want for christmas is you and then there's another christmas song that has sold 30 million songs uh 30 million copies and i'd never even heard of it it's a french song called uh Petit Papa Noel, and I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but it's also from the 40s. So, I mean, when we're talking about most recent entry to the canon, it's the best-selling since White Christmas, at least in English, um, Christmas song. It's it's amazing. And yes, we've it's been beaten over our heads, but I think to some degree that's because there hasn't been anything anywhere
1: close to it since. Yeah, so I've pulled up a list. I don't think of this as a Christmas song because it came from the movie, but I get why they're adding it as a Christmas song. But do you want to build a snowman from frozen is way up there on the list now as a selling single. I don't think of that as a Christmas song. I think of it as a winter song. I know I'm splitting hairs there, but okay. Um,
0: But I mean, it's
1: I'll allow it. I, I, but I don't think that's a Christmas song.
0: No, it's
1: not. Um, uh sabotage, better known to most normal people. If you're into 80s metal, you know him as Sabotage. Most people know him as the Trans Siberian Orchestra because that's their second act where they made a god bad money Uh Christmas Eve Sarajevo, that is, of course, the redoing of the Carol of the Bells, the orchestra metal version of it. Everybody loves that. Yep. That's next on the list. I'm looking at. And then as far as modern stuff, um, uh, mistletoe by Justin Bieber, I'm not going to acknowledge that exists sorry (laughs) just not gonna do it rocking around the christmas tree that's brenda lee i put that in that um new classics the 50s 60s 70s uh it came out in 58 so i'm gonna move that one back where are you christmas tale? now that came from the grinch movie from you know 15 20 years ago now uh that came out in 2000 which was 22 years ago sorry folks 23 years ago That the
0: uh that's the jim carrey that's the
1: jim carrey ron howard grinch movie okay i'm good with that that's a good song by the way that's good that works um jose feliciano's Feliz navidad from the 70s is on that list that, good. yep that's any other version of that song is hot garbage and i don't want to hear it but his is fantastic crank that yep. up every single time
0: yeah
1: jingle bell rock from 57 of course that's become a classic then we get into the sticky one as far as the modern canon go because her fans are uh, ridiculous, although I do like her as an artist. Wham! busted out Last Christmas in 84, and then Taylor Swift covered it. And now you get into a modern and then an even more modern take. And I actually like the Taylor Swift version. I'm just going to admit it.
0: I will I will confess I am not familiar with that version. I can't stand the original.
1: Um, the there's
0: There's a there's a logic to the lyrics that just fails me um you know last christmas i gave you my heart okay i get that metaphor uh but the very next day you gave it away so how did how did the recipient of my love give my love to somebody it's Just I, at that point i'm done i'm sorry am i being oh, pedag-
1: no yes. hold that thought because one of mine that i really dislike has a logic flaw in it as well and i'm going to use that same string of logic Here's a new one I'm going to add to the list, though. But Pentatonics, if you're not familiar with that, they're a vocal group. Uh, they got big on, um, I think, America's Got Talent or one of those shows. They're really good. They've been around for a while. They've got multiple Christmas songs, mostly covers uh, that have gone platinum. I'm looking at this list again. Uh, here's one I really like The Christmas Time is Here. That's the Charlie Brown piano score, uh, the Vince Guaraldi trio, who did all that jazz music for the original Peanuts. Yeah. God, there's no way. I was walking by a hotel front in a major American city last week on vacation in an undisclosed location. Just walking by and hearing it play, like there's it's it's like a friggin' warm blanket every time you hear it. I love that song so much. Everything on that Christmas special, by the way, but especially that well, is so so good.
0: I mean, that's the that's the one that everybody thinks of. If, if you told somebody that there was there were no other songs, they'd probably believe you. Most people,
1: they hadn't seen it. All right, let's get to it. Crappy. Bad, horrible Christmas songs. Uh, Paul McCartney is a legend. He's an all-timer. He's in multiple Hall of Fames multiple times. But uh, wonderful Christmas time is an all-timer of a bad song. Christmas and or otherwise, yeah. It's The auditory equivalent to syphilis. It eats your brain, rots your soul, and you die embarrassed, and nobody wants to be anywhere near you. Oh, it's a more thoughts.
0: Uh it it is. It sounds to me like someone took took paul and said hey sir paul you're you're one of the greatest songwriters of all time and i'm not gonna argue with that um they took him and they put him in a room and they gave him an hour and they said write a christmas song he took 15 minutes this is what we got and he just walked out i mean it's it's very um half-bottomed if you will it's the the melody is it's like he thought he could get away with a simple melody because it's a christmas song whereas yeah there's a lot about christmas that is simple and nostalgic and and the lyrics are nothing to write home about but a lot of christmas songs have you know kind of sent banal senti- sentimentality to them and that's okay we expect that that's part of what what this season is for people but it's it's like he just he mailed it in and ding dong ding dong, oh, paul Paul, at least John didn't try to one-up you by also writing a terrible, terrible
1: Christmas song. Oh, wait, he did. Yeah, it was bad, too, but Paul takes the cake on this Oh, one. definitely. Now, there's some real stinkers on the list. I'm pulling from Esquire's list of the worst Christmas songs of all time. Uh, there's multiple cover songs on here from people that are really, really talented. Jackson Fives are on here for their cover of uh, Kissing Santa Claus, you know? Oh, yeah. <sighs> John Denver doing and I'm going to just quote this because I still can't believe this really happened. But John Denver did, "Please Daddy don't get drunk on Christmas." We got to mention that one, the Bon Jovi song um Backdoor Santa. I'm going to leave that one without any further comment. Thank There's you. been some other ones. Um New Song did a song called The Christmas Shoes. This set back humanity and charitable giving. Probably three or four centuries minimum. This is this is the most god-awful drivel. I hate it so much. It's terrible. I, it it should just be blasted into space and beg the aliens to come blow our planet up. I yeah. hate this song so bad. Yeah. I heard it. I heard it in a Ross while I was trying to do some upscale shopping the other day, and I just wanted to just go into a fit of rage. I'm buying nothing.
0: <laughs> that I mean it it is. It is an objectively terrible song. It also has that, that country music thing where they try to pour it on really thick
1: and it gets poured on so thick that it just thick. Thick. They poured the asphalt for I-95 thinner than this thing.
0: Oh yeah. And it's, uh, it's solidified crap. It's, it's the worst possible combination of everything that, you know, it's, it's, the bad songs are bad because sometimes it's a bad performance. Sometimes it's, you know, please, Daddy, don't get drunk on Christmas or um or having, you know, little Michael Jackson singing, "I saw Mommy kissing Santa Claus," and it's just a little weird. But sometimes it's also because people analyze Christmas songs and they think, okay, what makes a good Christmas song Well, you want? You want home, you want love, you want giving, you want charity, you want some sentimentality, you want some sweetness. And people will even take a little bit of extra sweetness and then they dump it all on top and it's just too much. It's too much. There's a balance that the real stinkers don't get.
1: All right. Here's one I'm going to get hate for, but I don't care. "Mary, did you know" is a god awful Christmas song. With we were you. talking about we were talking about the logic the other day. It's like, "Mary, did you know?" God sent an angel to explain it to her. I'm pretty sure when the Almighty sends an angel specifically to you by name to explain something to you that's getting ready to happen, you not only know. I'm pretty sure it didn't slip her mind afterwards. So, yeah. yes, I hate this song. I know people like it. I know there's religious connotations. I'm all about Faith at Christmas. I hate this song so much. I want to rip out my ears every time I hear it. It's, did you know? Did you No. So we're going to make her infantile and stupid and incomprehensible and act like she didn't understand something, just to reiterate, that a freaking angel told her.
0: Not just any angel. Not just any angel. Gabriel himself coming down. So it's
1: our thesis that Gabriel is a bad communicator. Is that the theory here?
0: He explicitly needed her to say, sure, go ahead. Let's do this. It's like she had time to think about it. She pondered it it in her heart and then forgot completely. It's all. It's yes. I mean, I think it is. If you can get every denomination of Christianity. To agree on on one thing as far as doctrine goes, and that's that, yeah, Mary knew, and you're going to write a song based not on that? Yeah, it's hot garbage.
1: So bad, and I'm just going to say this. I think the newer Christmas songs, the more religious they try to get, it's almost like the worst they get. At least if it's a pop song, you can go, well, I'm tired of it because it's a pop song, and it's an earworm, and it just drives me nuts like Mariah Carey. Yeah. There, there's. It's like trying to write a new hymn. It's like the hymns are classics for a reason. I'm not against you writing a new one, but you're not going to write another classic hymn.
0: Well, the standard is pretty high, isn't it? I yeah. mean, we about earlier, two Christmas songs have collectively sold 68 million copies. Like, that's that's incredible. And those two songs are ubiquitous. And, you, you, you know, you come at the king, you better not miss. Well... Some people miss pretty spectacularly,
1: and it's that's two songs in two thousand some odd years of having Christmas, though, and about far, four or five hundred years in its current modern form as we know it in yeah. variations. Okay, I'll give you that. Um, your, your your window of winning here is really small. Oh, absolutely! Not only is it small, but you've got
0: you've got absolute classics that people can hum and just off the top of their head and you've got you've got a whole collection of songs this canon that and now everybody's got a different date some people are okay with hearing the music starting you know right after thanks right after thanksgiving some people are right after halloween um my family we split the difference and go november 15th it's one of my kids birthdays but you've got this whole collection of music that everybody just saves for this time of year i don't want to hear it in july i don't want to hear it in march this time of year these are the songs we want to hear and if you want to add to that it's got to be something pretty special
1: see my i'm one of these thanksgiving guys like i don't want to hear a word about christmas until after thanksgiving dinner now as soon as dinner's done let's go crazy let's decorate everything let's crank the music up we turn it on but i don't want to hear people about christmas till thanksgiving's over
0: and i i you know even though i'm a different date person i totally respect that and i think it's it's part of the specialness of this season is that we take all these things that we love and we <laughs> we say 11 months out of the year-ish. Um, we don't want to have them because it's just not appropriate. And then this time hits, whether you, you call it the Christmas season or you call it, uh, you know, Advent or whatever you call it. This time happens and, and it's special and it's so special that we only want to have it now. And then we put it away in couple of weeks from now actually
1: brian o'nolan all right give me your favorite christmas song i see the christmas tree back there when the uh, when the o'nolan clan gathers around and you limp over to your chair as head of the household with your new uh medical marvel hip a lot less (laughs) a lot less limping what uh what's the number one christmas song in the o'nolan house
0: well, there are four of us. You're going to get four different answers. For me, I'm I have to say, "O oh, come, O oh, come, Emmanuel," because I'm a I'm a real I'm a traditionalist, and that one is one of the very few actually legit Advent songs. It's it's not about hey, Christmas is here. It's Christmas is coming. Um, we don't have a ton of those, and I love the fact that it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years the lyrics to that are are very old and in latin um the original and don't ask me to quote them i don't speak a word of it um but that's that's got to be my go-to if i only get one that's the one i'll take how about you
1: there's a couple there's a tradition in our family uh my mom's family gets together on christmas eve in the home place um my uh my one cousin who is a supremely talented singer sings Oh holy night acapella. That one always is a, is a special one because that's, that's a long running tradition. Now cousin Kim sings Oh holy night acapella after everybody's been singing carols for a good while. It's Wait. ridiculous. That's one of those songs though. It's like how it's presented is everything. Yes. Um, as far as me just enjoying a Christmas song, I talked about the, the, the Charlie Brown stuff. I know that sounds silly, that just that little jazz riff of Christmas time is here. Look, I love White Christmas, I love the hymns, Silent Night, all that stuff. Um, I even like Taylor Swift singing, you know, give my heart away to get it back because you know FedEx was closed or whatever. <laughs> I just that little jazz. I'm telling you the truth. I was walking down the streets, I was in Chicago, I'm walking down the street, and a hotel is playing it at the car check station. And I literally just kind of stopped and smiled, and I couldn't help it. Like, there's something about that Charlie Brown Christmas, any of that little jazzy, you know, Guadardi trio stuff, but that particular song done that way with just that real mellow offbeat riff and the piano, and I think about the piano at home growing up and sitting around the tree, that just hits me every single time. And I know that's probably not on a lot of people's high list for Christmas songs, but it's on me, and it just happened to me again. Just randomly, I hear that, and I'm just like, ah. Like, no matter what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, I'm just like, ah, Christmas. yeah. And Christmas is so commercialized now. There's very few things that are Christmassy that will do that anymore. But that does it every time.
0: And I think what you're talking about there is like, yes, for you, it's that riff. But I think everybody, just about everybody, has some... All the good people. All the good people um, has some little moment in a song that reminds them of childhood safety when things were when things were good and that sort of rose-colored glasses view of the past that we often have and so that musical that's a musical cue for you but we've all got them i if if i hear a, a decent version especially if it's a sort of sort of gregorian chant style version of o come we Come, emmanuel i i am picturing my house when i was a kid it's uh dark i can see the christmas tree i I can see specific uh ornaments that are on the tree there's snow outside the windows because there's always snow outside the windows at christmas time in the past um it it just it brings you back and it doesn't you know everybody's got their own little cue but when it hits you it hits you and can't miss it
1: i completely agree uh, Brian O'Nolan, we're going to have you back. We'll do the good Christmas songs here as we get closer to Christmas. Uh, you write at Ordinary Times. Let folks know where they can know and follow you, my friend, because you're a brilliant writer. You do sar- you do sarcasm better than just about anybody I know. Oh, Let thanks. folks know where they can follow you and keep track of you.
0: Yep. Uh, not only am I at uh, ordinary-times.com. You can find me there. Um, but I'm also on Twitter at Brian O'Nolan, Brian with a Y. And... Um, I try to keep it clean, but I'm not always successful.
1: <laughs> well, until you sent Mike Pence to the gathering of the Juggalos, but that's another story for another <laughs> <It's day>. another <laughs> which you need to go read, by the way. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Brian Nolan, appreciate you, my friend. Thank you. Right. Merry Christmas,
0: everybody.
1: And Merry Christmas. Thank you, sir. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on The Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics From the vanilla, to the ADHD, to the international accountability, to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.